broken pieces are an important part of our journey of growing in Christlikeness. A glorious pursuit of experiencing long-term change that only comes from following Jesus. It is an ancient journey of practicing the Christian virtues and living the truly abundant life as God defines it. A life made possible by God's grace, empowered by God's Spirit, and modeled by God's Son. This is the beauty of becoming. Well, hi there. <laughs> I am Brian, and I'm going to be using my extra projection voice. Our team is working on sound right now. If we've not met yet met, uh, I'm our online campus pastor, and I am recently back from a 10-week time away as I was on sabbatical. Uh, but it is so good to be back with you here in Bellingham, uh, for all of you in Skagit, and certainly for those uh, online as well. Uh, this was my very first sabbatical ever, and so I didn't really know what to expect going in. Uh, what, what would it be like, and how would I do in sabbatical doing nothing, not coming to work, not checking in, not seeing you? And I got to tell you, it was incredible. It was so... <laughs> so if that sounded wrong, I apologize, but it was so good to be away. It was so good for my heart and my spirit and um, just my family. And there were so many highlights of being away. One of them was recent. It was two weeks ago where I got to travel to College Station, Texas. So as the online campus pastor, we have a congregation that's watching virtually online at all three of our services. And one of our faithful 9 a.m. online attenders, lives in College Station, Texas. Her name is Marlene, goes by Oma Online. And long story short, she expressed an interest and excitement to be baptized, but could not travel from College Station to Bellingham. And because our Cornwall Church online campus has no geographic limitations, we hopped on a jet plane to head down to College Station, Texas to meet Marlene, and God provided the perfect day, the perfect location, the perfect spot for this public display of her profession of faith. And so I want to take you to College Station, Texas, right there on the campus of Texas A&M in the shadow of Kyle Field. Here's how it went. ever been before because of the events that have happened since moving to College Station. My husband retired. We came here. He had four months. He had several. He had over 30 strokes. They brought him home to pass. That was one event. And in that, I also heard the Lord. And then I became very ill during the COVID. And my left ventricle went to 13%. I was told I had to get another heart, and I said, no, I'm turning it over to God. God has brought me to this point now. Now is my faith is so strong, I can't imagine not having a shield and being blessed and being baptized to profess my faith forever. Thank you. 
so cool. So cool. Life change happening here in Bellingham, in Skagit, and across the country uh, with our online campus. So, so cool to be uh, celebrating with Marlene, who is watching and attending right now online. Uh, so much else happened during my sabbatical. I, I got to spend a lot of time outside. I got to sleep in. I, I read tons of books. Um, I, I journaled a lot. I had a lot of unhurried time with Jesus, Shauna, my kids, our friends in that order. And being home during a time that my kids were not on break allowed me to see how busy we really are. Our lives are busy. And uh, Taxi Dad was in full form. And during my sabbatical, my kids ended and started brand new sports seasons. Uh, my daughter, actually, during my sabbatical, we got to see her inducted into the National Honor Society. She was elected its co-president, which, which made me, yeah, particularly proud because, I mean, it's not a big deal, but when I was a senior in high school, I was inducted into the National Honor Society, and I served as our uh, president that year, which, yeah, come to think, it was actually kind of a cool year. I was Honor Society president, I was FBLA president, I I served as German club president, I was the student body president, I, I spoke at graduation that year, I was the lead in the school musical, I, I just... Okay, stop, stop for a second. If that was uncomfortable to listen to, no, it was even more uncomfortable to say, okay? If I'm being honest, Shauna, my wife, said, do not put the church through that. So I apologize. The truth is that it's not hard to identify someone with a lack of humility. It's often glaring and tangible and probably cringeworthy when it's on display. I don't know about you, but I kind of get that sick feeling when someone starts, you know, vomiting at the mouth like that. Take LeBron James, for example. Now, if you're a LeBron James fan, just pump the brake. Give me a second. I'm going to spout off some facts. LeBron James was the number one draft pick straight out of high school. He is a four-time NBA MVP. He inked a $90 million deal, an endorsement deal with Nike, before he ever stepped foot on an NBA court. He has the most playoff wins and the most postseason minutes than anyone in history. He is the youngest player to win Rookie of the Year. Sports Illustrated called him the Chosen One, and his nickname is King James. And no doubt, LeBron James has solidified his place in basketball infamy. The kid from Akron, Ohio, now sits atop the mountain celebrating, lavishing in his success, his fame, his talent. And he is not sh afraid or shy to tell you of this fact. In a recent interview, LeBron James said this, and I quote, Everywhere I've been, I've been the best player. I love being the best. It's not about being cocky or selfish or anything like that. It's just who I am. Even my family gets spoiled watching me do the things I do. Yeah, even his family is spoiled. I mean, can you imagine if Pastor Bob stood on this stage and said, Cornwall Church, you are spoiled to have me as your senior pastor. It's not about being cocky or selfish. It's just who I am. Oh, look, LeBron James is undoubtedly one of the greatest basketball players of our time. But let ESPN say so. Let commentators say so. Let history say so. 
I would offer the humble brag, it is ridiculous because it is all brag, it is not humble at all. And the Bible actually speaks to this specifically. Proverbs 27.2 says, let someone else praise you, not your own mouth. Let it be an outsider and not your own lips. You would be hard pressed to find in the Bible a call or a directive where we get to brag or be arrogant. In fact, only the opposite is true. As Christ followers, humility is an essential characteristic. It's an essential characteristic. We are called by Christ to be humble in both speech and action. And it's essential. It's not suggested. It's not optional. It's not a strong recommendation. It's essential. It's required. It's of utmost importance. That as Ron would say, as we live, work, and play, that we live in a posture of humility. Humility is often easy to understand, but sometimes hard to practice in real life. But it is worth it. Because humility looks good on everyone. Everyone looks good when they're wearing humility. Oh, that person over there, they are way too humble, said no one ever. You see, humility is optimal for everyone, but it is required and essential for Christ followers. Some of the most humble people I know are not Christians and want nothing to do with the church, but they are the most servant-hearted, driven by care for others, thoughtful people I know, but again, want nothing to do with Jesus or the establishment of the church. So what if what if we, the church, led the way, that we were driven by a care for others? We modeled humility. What difference might we start? We're called to set aside pride and arrogance and a posture of humility in order to, or so that, we grow in our faith and we're driven by a desire to embrace the beauty of becoming more like Jesus. You see, in this culture that's all about you and me, in our time today, I really want us to explore how we can practically and purposely prioritize others over ourselves. So first, we look to Scripture, because in Scripture, we find our direction. In the Bible, we find our direction. You see, humility is nothing new. It has been a requirement and a guiding principle since the beginning of our existence. The Bible will define humility as a fear of the Lord. Not a afraid fear, but a reverent fear. The Latin root of humble means of the earth. So really to be humble is to be face down on the ground, a complete submission. Humility is often characterized as a lack of arrogance or a modest view of oneself, and that's true. But biblical humility goes beyond that. It's a critical and continuous emphasis on how we act and the way we live and a realization of who we are and who God is. The word humble or a reference to humility is found more than 80 different times throughout the Bible. You probably recognize some of these verses. 1 Peter 5, 6, to enter God's presence, we must humbly come to the throne. Matthew 5, 5, God says the humble will inherit the earth. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Micah 6, 8, what does God require of us? That we do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. 
Luke 14, 11, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Perhaps the clearest encouragement for humility, however, is found in Colossians, because it's an encouraging way of instinctual living versus just something we do. Paul would write this to the Colossians in chapter 3. He would say this, as God's chosen people... Holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. You see, for those that are in relationship with Christ, we are set apart. We are God's chosen people. We are beloved in the family of God. And with that, we are not without a responsibility. Now, don't hear that as conditional. Do not hear that as legalistic. Look, I love my kids. My love for my kids is unconditional, but that unconditional love does not free them from certain expectations and responsibilities. The same is true here. As we have been chosen, as we are loved, it should be our desire, our auto response to want to make every effort to live a godly life, and in this case, to live humbly. Peter would use the exact same illustration in his letter. He would say this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Consider that you don't think about how to breathe. You just inhale and exhale. It's instinctive. The Bible makes the same case for humility using an a understandable, relatable illustration. You don't think about how to get dressed. You just put one leg on and then the other leg on and you button and you zip. In the same way, we are to instinctively clothe ourselves or put on certain attributes, in this case, humility, in a way that becomes natural and woven into how we live our lives. You see, throughout Scripture, throughout the direction in Scripture, we are called to the same directive. Be humble. Be humble. Be humble before God. Be humble before others. Be humble so much that it becomes like breathing, and you just do it naturally. In your life, in your circle of influence, I I'm guessing you have a handful of people that come to mind that are exceptional at this like naturally, legitimately humble. Not like humble brag humble, but like it's apparent that humility is their natural state. This is Tony Shea. For 20 years, Tony was the CEO of Zappos.com, the online shoe retailer. He retired in August of 2020 and tragically would pass away later that year. In the weeks following his death, thousands of tributes started to pour in, and some spoke of his, his entrepreneurship, some of his passion uh, for leadership, others his playful spirit. But there was a commonality among these tributes, this sentiment of appreciating his humility. Tony believed he could not be effective as a leader and a person unless he was on the ground building relationships experiencing his company firsthand. And so as CEO, he made some groundbreaking decisions. He came into Zappos.com and he took away all job titles. He made it possible for the person at the lowest of the totem pole, the, the janitor, the mail worker, to be able to talk to him as the CEO and other high executives. 
He moved from his luxury apartment in downtown to a trailer in the neighborhood where his company was. He took to heart humility and moved it into action. This is Ben Rector. Ben Rector is a singer and songwriter. He's based out of Nashville, grew up in Oklahoma City, grew up in a church-going family. Mom and dad both led music at church. Ben has had a wildly successful career. He continues to sell out his tours. He's had over a billion streams of his songs online. He's released eight albums. His music has been included in TV shows and movies, and all of the success without the support of a record label. I had a chance to see Ben earlier this month in Seattle, and there was a moment toward the end of the concert where he asked that all the lights be brought up. He wanted to see who was in the Moore Theater that night, and he said something incredible. He said, thank you for being here. I am still wowed every night we do a show that this many people care enough to hear my songs. It means everything to me. Despite his success, Ben is founded in humility. One more. This is Bill Gilfillan. Now, as many of you know, Bill served and retired as our small group's pastor, serving here about six years and wrapping up a long ministerial career. One of Bill's challenges is he doesn't know a stranger. You see, everyone is a friend to Bill. Everyone is worth a handshake and hello. Everyone is worth a moment of his time and for them to share his story. In my lifetime, about four decades, I have not met anyone with more authentic humility than Bill Gilfillan. Now, let me be clear. I, I get it. Bill's just a man. I do not idolize Bill, but as a follower of Christ, Bill is mastering the practice of clothing himself with humility and a humility towards others, so much so that for Bill, it is natural, it is instinctive. And to this list, you could add David and Job and Mary and Ruth and Daniel and Joseph and John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he would say, he must become greater and I must become less. Add Moses to that list. Moses had a really unique distinction. In Numbers 12, 3, Moses is credited with being not only very humble, but more, than, more humble than any man on earth. However, while this list, along with Tony, Ben, and Bill, is great and great examples, they are not who we are called to emulate. In the beauty of becoming more like Christ, when it comes to humility, only in Jesus do we find our example. He's the only and true and perfect example. If you think back to Matthew 11, he has this very unique invitation. Jesus calls himself humble. He says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. Okay, hang on, that sounds like a bit of a humble brag, Jesus. Let's not, because it's true, it's fact. He is the definition of humble. He's the incarnation of humility. So you want to make, you want to pick an example? Pick Jesus. He's the definition of humble. More than anyone else that ever lived, he had the right to claim power and status. 
However, throughout Scripture, we see Jesus model a very different way of living life. And we have the privilege, privilege of knowing the entire story. And so knowing Jesus as we do, we can see how his humility then was counterculture and would lay the groundwork for all, all those that would follow him later. I mean, consider this. It was Jesus who picked a common trade of carpentry. It was Jesus who kept company with the lowest of the culture, the lame, the sick, the outcast. It was Jesus who in the upper room would wash the feet of his disciples. And it was Jesus who picked the birthplace of a barn, a feeding trough as a crib, and shepherds, lowly shepherds, as his first visitors. What king, what president, what CEO, what celebrity would ever choose that life? And yet that's exactly what Jesus, God's only son, chose to do to example humility. He would show us humility from birth until death. If anyone had a good reason not to be humble, it was Jesus. But that's not how he operated. He wanted to get his hands dirty. He wasn't interested in status. Philippians 2 reminds us best of this truth. Paul begins this way. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, right away, we're reminded of the example we are to be following, that of Jesus. And Paul, as always, uses words very specifically. He says, the same as. He's not saying similar to or like or get as close as you can. He says the same. When you think of Christ's attitude and example, copy it, emulate it. If you're serious about becoming like Jesus, you have to have the same attitude as him. So he says your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but instead made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Just let that sink in. Jesus, equal with the Father, sharing glory with him, having every privilege with God, chose to become a man, lay aside privilege, having nothing, lowering himself to nothing, to human likeness, taking on the position of a servant. And more than that, Philippians 2 ends this way, being found in appearance as a man... He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Guys, to be humble is to have the same mindset of Jesus. And more than just washing feet or hanging out with outcasts, this was Jesus' best and most perfect example of humility. And this was not on a whim. Jesus didn't wake up one day and think, ah, I got a great idea for how to show the disciples humility. This is how he wanted to show us his virtues. Of course, he wanted to show us how to love and how to care and how to forgive and how to example humility. It was the plan the whole time. The gospel of Mark will say this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
Humility expressed potentially no clearer than in the final, one of his final statements. In one of his final moments on earth in Luke 22, he would say, while hanging on the cross, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus came to serve and give up his life. Now, let's be clear. Jesus isn't calling you to follow him to die on a cross. However, he is calling you to follow him in a posture of humility. A humility for him that, yes, led him to a cross. A humility for you that may lead you to a tough conversation, a challenging circumstance, an opportunity to serve another person or lean deeper into your faith. The question is, are you willing Are you willing to forget or give up your position, your title, your bank account, your your status, your actual or perceived status, your pride, your fear, in order to be authentically humble? Jesus didn't put on humility that day just to check a box. It's who he was in his eternal perfect nature. So scripture provides the direction, Jesus provides the example, and then finally in life, we find our practice. Think of it this way. If scripture is the syllabus and Jesus is the professor, then life is our practicum, where we get to put into practice everything we've learned in the classroom. I personally am not a fan of the phrase, practice makes perfect. This side of heaven, we can't achieve perfection. So I much prefer practice makes permanent because our practice can create a permanency to the point where putting on humility becomes second nature, just like we put on clothes every day. And I get it. That doesn't always come easy. As I mentioned, two weeks ago, I was in College Station, Texas. And College Station, Texas is the home of the George Bush Presidential Library. Now, fun fact, I'm a bit of a presidential civics nerd. So when we had a bit of time, I was so pumped that we got to go to the Presidential Library. The museum is arranged in chronological order and so came to the one section of George Bush's childhood and his growing up. And as you walk around that section and throughout the library, you get the sense George Bush was a humble man. Politics aside, he was a humble person. I love this particular quote that was found in the section on his childhood. It it goes like this. If I, George Bush, wrote my mother a letter saying I scored three goals, she'd call and say, how'd the team do? As you read further, He goes on to say how his mother was instrumental in teaching him humility. You see, sometimes we need others to help us practice humility. And it definitely takes a humble spirit to hear it and accept it without getting defensive. Biblical humility is not only necessary to enter the kingdom, it is necessary to be great in the kingdom. Humility is the dress code of God's kingdom. And and through Paul, we have a great encouragement. To the Philippians, he would write this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others above yourself. Each one of us should not look to our own interests, but the interests of others. To the Romans, he would write. 
Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. And to the Ephesians, he would up the ante a bit. As he sat in prison, he would, it, it would compel that same encouragement, and he would tell us a why. To the Ephesians, he would say this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. As Paul does, he doesn't mince words here. What he'd write to the Ephesians is almost like he's writing to us today. Be humble, be gentle, be patient before one another. And this is more than a suggestion. He says, I, Paul, urge you, I insist, I implore you. And one might say, why? What's the big deal? I get it. He reminds us that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. We are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which we've been called by Jesus. Jesus is the reason. Jesus set the example. Jesus set the benchmark. And so if we are going to follow him, we have to do so where and how he walked. Sometimes we associate the word humble or the idea of humility with qualities like quiet or submissive or inadequate Maybe humility means to you that we have to be silent or, or passive. Humility is not about weakness. Humility does not mean you have to be a doormat. C.S. Lewis said it this way, humility is not thinking of yourself less. It's thinking of your, sorry, not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. It's a paradigm shift. When we are actively humble, we will be proactive and taking initiative for other people, with others in mind. Recently, Pastor Andy Stanley uh, said on a podcast uh, about humility and the idea of how we as Christ followers, we the church, can lead the way in having conversation with others, leaning into humility. He said, here are four easy statements Number one is, I was wrong. He said, no know-it-all leader is ever humble. A hallmark of a humble leader is the ability to apologize and admit shortcomings. Number two, he said, say, I can imagine. I can imagine that was difficult. I can imagine how you feel. I imagine how that situation might have been complex. Someone humble will stretch themselves to think of others rather than become self-involved. Number three, he says, say you'd know best. Anyone that knows me, I often say, you're the number one expert on, insert topic here. A humble person knows what they know and what they don't know. They know the limits of their knowledge and they're not afraid to step aside and default to someone else. The fourth thing he says is say nothing at all. He said, people that are humble listen really well. They ask great questions. And then Andy Stanley quote here, he says, then they shut up. They don't try and fill in answers or assume what you're going to say. They just listen. So maybe it's saying nothing at all. 
It's true. At the very end of the day, one could have a heart full of pride and arrogance, but on the outside show humility. But I will offer to you that has a shelf life. It does require us to battle the ongoing battle with ourselves, with our wants and our desires and what we assume and what we want and desires and goals. All of that, battling that to practice humility. And more than just thinking about it, it does require obedience. You can't just think humility. It can't just live here. Humility is external evidence of your heart's condition. External evidence of what's going on in here. Humility is an action. It is a choice. It's a minute-to-minute-to-minute decision to be outward and others-focused. Charles Cunningham would offer this acronym as we work to keep humility top of mind. He says, as you live your life, choose joy. Choose joy, J-O-Y. Jesus first, others second, and yourself dead last. Jesus always comes first, always. What does he want from you? What does he want for you? He gets priority every single time. If we have a right spirit of humility, he gets that place before family, before your spouse, before the football game, before that to-do list. We are to always, always humble ourselves before what Jesus calls us to do. As Pastor Kip mentioned, we're two weeks away from Easter, where we get to celebrate and be reminded that Jesus, the Son of God, He'd arrive to cheers and palms waving, an arrival that would end much different, a public trial and public beating and a death on the cross. Jesus gets humility. Jesus gets putting people first. So we got to follow his example. So J, Jesus, second, others, other people first. Mark 9.35, we get this great glimpse of Jesus and his guys sitting down. It says, Jesus called the 12 and said, if any of you wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Jesus was pretty blunt on how to exercise humility well. That the way to step up is really to step down and to be a servant you know this, that God is at work all around us in Bellingham, in Mount Vernon, in College Station, Texas. It's just a matter of if we're willing to pop our head up and look around, see what he's up to outside our own little world, and then being open to the Spirit leading us how we get to be part Jesus will shine in us when we prioritize others over ourselves. And you'll, just so you know, you're not always going to get thanked. You likely won't always get acknowledged. But that's not why we do what we do. We walk boldly and willingly in a manner of the calling we've been called to. And perhaps not at first, but somewhere along the way, By serving others and placing other interests ahead of your own, it will bring you joy. Not happiness, that's fleeting, but joy. It will bring you joy when you put others ahead of yourself. And then finally, in a distant third, we look to our 
own interests, ourselves. Be assured there will be minutes in the day for you to get to that to-do list, to watch the football game, to hang out with your buddies, or just read, a, read in uh, the corner with a book. You will get to yourself, I promise. But Jesus first, others second. In our Western American culture, we are trained from childhood that it's all about me, mine, and my way. But what if we change that from me, mine, and my way to we, ours, and God's way? Because the truth is we need each other. We were programmed and created for one another, for community to take care of each other. And that means placing each other above our own needs. In a world, in a culture where we are tempted to focus on ourselves and get ahead for ourselves, God gave us Jesus, the perfect example of putting others' needs ahead of our own. And there is no shortage of evidence why. The Lord gives grace to the humble. A prayer life is essentially hinged on humility. It's a key to a fellowship with Jesus. Only relationships can grow and stretch when we are humble. Humility is essential to receiving godly wisdom. It's critical for allowing the Holy Spirit to nudge and direct us. Humility is there in the times we are in trouble. It is not just attractive. It is not just powerful. Humility is church necessary. Charles Stanley said this, we are not the light, but we are the lanterns that carry the light and point others towards the Lord. So as we prepare to wrap up this series, as we think through all the virtues that we have heard about, may we take to heart that each of these are not boxes to check. They are things to put on to grow us closer to Christ and this week, may our desire specifically be to clothe ourselves with humility, to think, how can I put someone else first? How can I put on not thinking of myself, but someone else before me and my needs? May humility be a natural outflow of our desire to become like Jesus. Hey, Skagit, thanks for hanging out with us today. I'm going to turn you over now to Pastor Scott. And all of us here in Bellingham and for all online, let me pray for you, and then we'll get you out of here today. Father God, we just want to pause. Thank you for this weekend. Thank you for this series, this reminder of ways that we can practically become more like you, how we can strive to be more in your likeness. And humility is hard but we will get practice on humility even as we leave this building today. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be, to be aware of ways that we can think and place others ahead of our own interests, our own desire. May people notice, but not for our purpose, but for your glory. May people wonder why. May it begin with us as we consider the beauty of becoming more like you. In your name we pray. Amen.